Okay, guys, before we start, I just want to do a little shout out here. Everyone has gone all out for this podcast. I mean, Brendan's here. He's somehow got his hair spiked green. It's like six inch Liberty spikes. Yeah. Check out something. my tank top. Yeah. Looking good. Nice guns. Thanks. Jason, I, I got to hand it to you. He's got a safety pin through his nose. It only hurt a little. It only hurt a little. It's mostly not bleeding. Head to toe studded leather. Guys, everyone, everyone has really gone all out for this thing. Yeah, uh, but Chris, you're here in a tie and a tweed jacket. Well, uh, I, I downloaded a couple of Patti Smith albums. Oh, well, then you totally hit it. Yeah, Never mind. Enough. Let's okay. go. Fair enough. All right. Welcome to the 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors, speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 75,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantillibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Jason Barron, Executive Director of Red Bike Cincinnati. Rock on. Chris Messick, the Business Manager of the Mercantile Library. Oi. And I'm Brendan Call, a board member of the Mercantile Library. We're so glad to be here, and as you heard at the beginning of our podcast, discuss, we've taken ourselves back to New York City in the late 70s to discuss the... Uh, impressive novel by Garth Risk Hallberg called City on Fire. Uh, this novel came out late last year. It's 900 plus pages long. Uh, he received a $2 million a record. Yeah. record breaking $2 million advance for this book. Um, he's a writer um, who had worked for the magazine N Plus One and The Millions. And so he. Um, had a lot of literary heft, and there was a lot of advance anticipation about this novel. And um, we're going to talk about it today, but I think most of us agreed it lived up to its uh, hype. And yeah. so uh, maybe, Jason, you can kind of tee it up for us as we, get, as we jump into this. So the blackout of... It all centers around the blackout in New York City, um, July 13th, I find out of 928, um, in 1977, which always had a special place in the lore of my life, because it is exactly one year before I was born. I was born July 14th, 1978. So I always thought this was very interesting that this giant blackout of the biggest metropolis in the, in the world happened one year before I was born. Um, so I've always wondered about it, and I've never you know, done much research about it. And so this book is all centered around that, right? And it's all leading up to this moment. Um, it basically tells the story of New York City in the late 70s, which is a very different New York City than we have today. It is... Um, it's, it's mostly graffiti everywhere. It is kind of run down. It's burnt out. It's just in a really bad state. The city had just come out of bankruptcy in the early 70s or the early to mid 70s. Um, and it was a city that seemed irredeemable. And he tells the story of several characters that all weave together. And you are introduced to them. And they're all told from different um, perspectives. And these characters weave together, culminating with this uh, about 10-hour period from the blackout that happened from about 9 p.m. on the 13th to 9 p.m. on the 14th, where everything came together, this giant 900-page hodgepodge that he worked out. And the whole story centers around, on, on some levels, it's a whodunit. It all centers around the shooting of um, Sam Chicario, 
who we debated a lot about how to say that name, but I'm going with Chicario, yeah. Sam Chicario, who um, was shot in Central Park um, New Year's Eve, six months before the blackout, or seven months before the blackout. And all of these characters interact with her in some way, and he balls all that together at the end into this great kind of experience of New York during the blackout. Um, we're going to try our best, I think, not to get too deep into the podcast. As Brendan said before, there's going to be spoilers. We're going to talk about the details of this, but we're more going to try to focus on some of the broader themes that he's trying to talk about, about New York City, about the time, about New York City sense, about art, about music. Um, it's 900 pages, so it's appropriately deep and heady stuff. Yeah, 900 pages with dozens of characters. I mean, for yeah. our listeners, we had to sit here for about a half an hour beforehand. <laughs> I finished it two months ago. Chris, I think you finished it, you said two weeks ago, yeah. and I think... I finished it about a two week days ago. ago. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so interestingly, with all of those characters... Trying uh, to remember everybody yeah. and how they all um, interwove is actually a challenge, especially yes. months later, yes. because there are so many characters and there is a lot of... Um, I mean, sometimes you only meet these characters for a dozen pages. Well, I say it's a whodunit, but it feels like the kind of book that if, if like, out of a classic TV crime story, you had a great big wall, like out of Homeland, right? And mm -hmm. you had pictures of all of the characters in string, and you could tie the string from all of the characters in order to connect all of the dots, and you still wouldn't fully understand yes. how right. it all mixes together. Yes, and... Um, and you said one thing there that there was a great review of this book in it um, in the Atlantic, and it talked all about how this book has been influenced so much by what we watch on television now, like binge watch TV. So The Wire and Friday Night Lights, and I know that on this podcast we've talked about some of these kind of binge watch shows mm -hmm. that have dozens of characters over long periods of time, interrelated plot twists. Um, you know, very much kind of the new way of watching television um, is, is almost a way of reading this book, is there are so many characters and so many plot lines. And they seem to come uh, from totally different worlds, and you only see the real connections late. Like, right. there are characters yeah. who you meet, and then you realize later on that, oh, that's the father of this other character who's doing a totally different right. thing. I had yeah. no idea those things would interact. Yeah. And they come smashing together. Right. So like how Boardwalk Empire is about Nucky Thompson, uh -huh. it's really about Atlantic City in a time period in, um, you know, during Prohibition. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the, you know, Prohibition, the story of Prohibition and before and after Prohibition, just through that lens. Exactly. And I think this book is like that a lot. Exactly. Um, I, I think one thing about this uh, book that really struck me is I think he did such a great job of, you know, writing about the, the fabulously wealthy people in that experience of New York at this time, the squatters in the alphabet city, you know, just the whole range, the, the, the same city viewed from so many different angles at the same time. Um, you know, I, 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 n no one of those, I think he did any less, this is one of the worst sentences ever made, no one of those he did any less good of a job. Yes, yes. He served them all well. Yeah. Yes, And yes. he was able to get into the space of what would be their motivations. Right. right. And each character had really specific motivations that led them to interact with the other characters in certain ways because they were all yearning for something. They were all looking to close some loop on themselves. Right. 
But like even when you're talking, like what you're talking, I mean, I completely appreciate what you said about that because you do get the squatters, you get the rock scene in in New York City, you mm-hmm. get the you get the pictures of the buildings that are still gleaming and bright, and the Hamilton Sweeney's who the Hamilton Sweeney's are characters in the novel um, who are kind of on the upper end, the yes. wealthier crust of the novel. Um, one who's kind of fallen away from the family and is kind of bridging the gap between the very wealthy and then the rockers and the artists. Um, but you also get Long Island and yeah. you get the suburbs and yeah. you get the kids who are living in the New York City suburbs but want desperately to get into what's going on on, you know, on in Lower Manhattan at yeah. the time. Uh, and, and that is, I think that is what he does, did not get enough credit for in many of the reviews of this book, which kind of bitched about the fact that it was a 900-page book and it was right. complicated and hard to read and there was too much going on. You can't write an epic novel about New York City in a period of time mm-hmm. unless you really get into this right. and, and get into these different worlds that exist in New York City. And yes. that's why I think this book, um, uh, long-term, is going to have, val- is going to have value to readers long from now right Um, this isn't i don't i don't feel like this book's gonna end up being a flash in the pan no well i i think maybe we all really like the book i think it's fair to say we read all 900 pages all 900 pages you don't read 900 pages of a book you don't like no this book i think i got back strain from carrying this yeah yeah right even though i read it on my kindle on my phone (laughs) but uh just to get it out of the way i think it's fair to say I, i think it could be a lot shorter. It could have been shorter. I mean, I don't know if it could be a 300-page novel, but I think... It could have been 700. It could have been, been 650. Seven, six, seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that there are... I mean, we sent a link around earlier where someone isolated some yes. of the kind of overly written sentences. Yes. Which I have to say, reading the book, there were some times I was... Some words that... I would kind of it was an SAT be a little exam. distracting. It yeah, was an SAT was exam. Like, okay. I mean, he definitely, in fact, yeah. I did a whole thing where I started, like, I think I have a decent vocabulary, but it's not great. But yeah. I started writing down words I'd never seen before. Me Usually, too. I just gloss over that because there's yeah. like two words in a whole book. And I, yeah. I kinda, I, you always can get the context <laughs> and what the word means. <laughs> yeah. But there were, about 100 pages in, there had been so many words where I was like, you're just using that <laughs> yeah, yeah. to just, show off that yeah. you know that He was showing word. off. Yeah. Was there are 10 other off. words that mean that yes, that you right. could have like, said. Look at my prowess. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So just, you know, but I, I didn't find that to be really a significant um, detriment. Like, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it was fun. It made me, you know, because it, 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 the, the one thing I'll, the one thing I'll say to defend the 900 pages of the book is uh-huh. that if ultimately one of his goals is to give you this picture of a New York City that is much different than the New York City we all experience, mm-hmm. but yet a New York City that many people remember, right? right. So this isn't, this isn't New York City from the 40s yeah. or, or New York City from the 20s. Right. This is New York City where people our parents' age lived there, right. knew that city, grew up in, in that city. And I think a lot of people still think, oh, New York. You know, maybe not so much now, but yeah, yeah. even fairly recently. I, I mean, I lived in New York in the early 2000s, and in-laws would come and be like They still had this impression nervous. of New York. They yeah, still, the they 70, still yeah. thought it would, they were going to get mugged every right. couple blocks. Right. And, yeah. And if that's your goal, then one of the ways to do that is to just get your get the dirt under your fingernails and to show all of the grime and really have you know, expository description of it and really just get your fingers all around that. And I think yeah. on some level, the 900 pages helps that. You know, right. a shorter book 
might not be as rich. It might not, you know, you get through it quicker. It maybe, you know, flows a little better. Yeah. But you might lose some of the detail and the nuance. It does feel like you get, it does feel like in the book you're dropped into New York in the 70s. Right. Like if you're going to read this book and you're going to invest 900 pages in it, it is almost like being transported to New York City in the 70s. And it is all encompassing in the book. You can't, um, it feels very much like, um, like, like virtual reality, right. almost mm-hmm. in a sense. Like I get that new New York Times virtual reality viewer where you put it on and you get to look around and it, you're somewhere. Mm-hmm. You're literally somewhere else. It's amazing yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. I feel like with it, it the beauty the beauty of this novel is in text. He did that for me. Yeah. I was in New York for yeah. the the month that it took me to read this book. I was in New York City. Well, and, and maybe and maybe one of the best examples of this, and this is one of the themes I think we all want to talk about is that one of the things, one of the focus areas in this book, one of the cultural pieces that this book talks about a lot is the punk rock scene, the emerging punk rock scene mm-hmm. of the early, or of the late 70s. Yeah. And for whatever reason, punk rock is a type of music that's totally missed me. And it's probably because, you know, when I first started listening to music and really getting into music, it was the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Right. That was in itself a reaction to the punk rock period. Right. So that's, maybe that's why I missed it. But I just don't know a lot about punk rock. Fortunately... We have someone who exactly. does. Ah. Um, well, I do, yeah. I have listened to a lot of punk and stuff that kind of came from that. And if you, if you picture the music of the popular music before punk rock, like think of Elton John, right. Led Zeppelin. Like Elton John is a virtuoso piano. I don't know if right. he's really... He's a good piano player. He's complicated yeah. piano yep. stuff. He's got a big band behind him. Led Zeppelin is writing these songs and like that go from six eight time to four four. You know, it's complicated. They're really skilled technicians. They're crafting this like pristine sounding produced thing. And so I think a lot of kids at that time, on the one hand, were saying like, you know, this doesn't really speak to me. Like cashmere, I don't know cashmere. You know, Elton John and. The yellow brick road. That's not me, you right, know? Right, right. I'm kind of, you know, kind of mad. My city's falling apart. Um, so, and I don't want to have to learn how to play the piano to really say that. I just want to get a guitar. And wail. And, and, and bang it out and yell. And, you know, there's a, it, what it lacks in this kind of technical um, ability, it, there's so much energy. And it's just, you can really tell... These guys are saying what's on their mind, no filter. It's like a direct connection from that person. There's no like idiom or metaphor to work out. It's just the raw sonic equivalent of how how they're feeling. And I think especially in New York, like it was really kind of born like in New York right before this time. Right. But I mean, picture your whole city's falling apart. You you know, the president, your city's going bankrupt. The president's dropped dead. Yeah, sorry. Right. You know, there's crime everywhere. So you Watergate know, just happened. Watergate just happened. There's like it's amazing. Of I mean, you're you're kind of saying that this this city and what was going in birthed a genre of music. Two two very important genres of music: punk and hip hop uptown, which yes. I think has, has a different sound, a different approach. But again, it's like we want to make like. We want to make the the music that we like, but we aren't like Parliament. We don't have fifteen guys that are all fantastic musicians to make this sound. 
I've got this record player, you know, I can make, if I can talk and say what's going on in the street and like use this someone else's music to express myself, I mean, it's the same thing. We've got nothing, but we want to say what we want to say, so let's do it. Like graffiti, too. I mean, that's kind of part of the, the right. hip-hop thing, but saying, you know, this, my city's not really talking to me, my city's falling apart. Right. So I can, instead of having this, this train, I can kind of take over this train. This can be my train where I express myself, this subway train. Right. And put a huge piece of art across a car. So it's like this... When it used to be that the subway trains, the inside of them were covered. Yeah. Like like a like a person with a lot of tattoos on a full sleeve. Yeah. Completely covered by graffiti on top of graffiti on top of graffiti. And yeah. that was just that was just the state of things. Right. That was just commonplace. Right. So this is like art coming out of anarchy. Like yeah. not, not full on anarchy, but you know, the cops weren't able to really control the crime right. problem. So I mean it's just like finding a way to express what's going on around you like that. Well, and one of the things I thought was interesting about it, when you think of, of how generations react to generations, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and they, they just kind of mentioned this in passing when there was a chapter where Sam, the, char the lead character that gets um, shot early on, but they, late in the book, they go back to her when her mom left her. And her mom left, I think when she was like 13 or so, left her dad and moved with the yoga instructor to like Montana. Mm -hmm. And her mom was this hippie flower child, right? Who was like, we can fix everything if we just love each other enough. Yeah. And one of the things that Nikki Chaos and his whole post-humanist movement was definitely a reaction to that, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was after free love and we're gonna fix everything by just holding hands and just being happy yeah. that we can just make everything better. And it was very much like, no, fuck that. We're yeah. gonna burn this down. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. was, I mean, literally what Nikki Chaos and the post-humanists were doing. Right. Um, and I think the book a little bit pokes fun at that, yeah. but it was definitely what was happening, and what this there was a complete reaction to. So musically, it was a reaction to these other bands, but I think yeah. culturally, the attitude of of the kids was a reaction to their parents. Right. And their parents had their own rebellion that was a reaction to the fifties. Yeah. And now there was this new reaction that was to you know because you, you, when you think about it from the long lens of history, you know hippies of the early seventies. Uh -huh seem like one of the most rebellious periods, right? Things right. kind of tamped down after that, you know? Right. And then, but then you look at it and it's like, oh wait, this was a more rebellious period yeah. in some ways. Yeah. And a more um, depressed group of kids, right? They were, they, they were reacting against their parents' love in some way, yeah. which is kind of nuts. Even, even you see Charlie's relationship with his parents. Yeah. His father passes away and well, his mom, mother and father adopt him and they love him, and he's great, and, but he goes through typical teenage angst, and then all of a sudden they actually have a set of twins, right. and now they've got kids that are their flesh and blood that he feels like they love a little bit more. Yeah, Charlie, and, yeah. So let's talk about Charlie a little bit yeah. here, because he, I think his connection to, I mean, he, so Charlie's the Sam's friend. He, he meets her in the city at a record store, I think. Think? He meets her in Long Island. He's like oh right 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 a baseball field. park or something. Uh, yeah. Right right right. But then they connect. And she again. notices him basically. Yeah yeah. And then um, and he, and so he for me he was the there are other main characters in the book mm -hmm. but he for me was the main character in the yeah. book. He's the the kid who this is his com this is his coming of age uh -huh. in this in this book and he comes from Long Island and he gets kind of in, immersed in. The culture of Nikki Chaos, who's who's this kind of, you know, and why does he do it? Nikki for the love of a woman finds yeah, exactly the reason we all try Sam. sushi. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's another podcast. <laughs> It'll be a good one. Um, 
So he comes from Long Island. He gets kind of enmeshed in what's going on in this music world. His musical tastes are changing. Right, from Led Zeppelin. Exactly. He's exactly what you were talking about. So he's this kid who comes to lower, you know, or to the, you know, the bottom part of Manhattan Island and... And his like mind is blown by what he sees. He encounters drugs and new new kind of music and a girl that he falls for and mm-hmm. you know a, a Nikki Chaos who sounds like he's a little bit of a charismatic leader but is clearly you know nuts. Um, yeah. And the whole world opens up to Charlie right um, in this novel. Right. And so for me, he he ends up being. I think the most important character for me. I don't know. Did well, either struggles, of you feel like... struggles the most real. So he was certainly right. the one that I identified with the yeah, most. Yeah, me too. And his struggle is the most real, which is that he falls for a girl. He kind of just completely embraces whatever she's about. Mm-hmm. So her band, her favorite band was Ex Post Facto, right. who William Hamilton Sweeney III or Billy Three Sticks mm-hmm. was the head of. So then that's his favorite band. Yeah. Right. And then she likes Patti Smith and with the, the, the album Horses, so yeah. he likes Horses. Right. And he goes all in and then he gets grounded and he's lost from her for like six months. A whole, And this is the whole time she's dating Keith Lamplighter. Right. Right, six months to a fifteen-year-old is, is like, forever. And yeah. so now, here's how you're get, you're getting into. Yes, she's dating Keith Lamplighter, which is what you just said. And now we're getting into how this starts to weave together, because Keith was married to Billy Three Sticks' sister. sister. Yeah, exactly. And and, and, yeah. and it gets. And by the way, for those of you listening, you know, highly recommend a notepad next to you when you're reading this book <laughs> to keep track of all the characters. Especially if you're gonna do a podcast and want to sound intelligent about yeah. it. Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah. Definitely does not give you a list of characters and how they're related. It's not like Game right. of Thrones. It, no. Yeah. But but Charlie. So then so so then tra- Charlie and Sam get back together for this great New Year's Eve, and Charlie is just like a, a overfilled balloon of hormones. Yeah. And love for her that he's built up in his head. That's all gonna culminate on this night. Right. New Year's Eve. She then abandons him to try to track down Keith, gets shot. Yeah. Now Charlie becomes a nihilist. He becomes a post-humanist as he meets up with Nikki Chaos, and he gets pulled into this punk scene yeah. more fully. He Which is the world she was coming from. Runs right. away from Already home. A yeah. couple of interesting things about Charlie. One is that we only really see Charlie from Charlie's perspective. Yes. And you, you find out some things that I wondered about early on. One, Charlie ends up being super tall. Yeah. With bright red hair. Yeah. Right? Which... Tall is more attractive, I think, than short, obviously, right? right. And so, sec- well, no, no, the, here <laughs> where I'm going, here yeah. where I'm going. Secondly, I, I wonder from the beginning, like, why does Sam hang out with Charlie? Yeah. She mentions a couple times how funny he is. Uh-huh. One of the things I wonder is if Charlie's not cooler than we think he is, yeah. right? So Charlie, we always see him as self-deprecating, yeah. right? But it turns out he's really tall. Maybe he's good looking. Uh-huh. He, he impresses this girl who seems to be, every, everybody's loves Sam, right? right? She's the center of all this attention. He's drawn into this movement of uh-huh. posthumanists, and they embrace him for some reason. Especially Nikki, seems and they to call take him the prophet. Him, yeah. And at the end, he seems to be the one almost preaching in the lead up to the great last scene, right? right? And then, so that's one thing, right? Is that maybe Charlie's cooler than we think, and that mm-hmm. he's just like all of us when we're in high school, and we right. just think we're the worst. Yes, uh, I just love like this, this yeah. is great, right? Yeah. That's but a, then secondly, Charlie also is fascinating because Charlie is a Gentile mm-hmm. adopted by Jews yes. who finds a Bible in right before he meets Sam right. and becomes obsessed with this Bible, right. right? And starts reading it, really gets a lot out of it, meets Sam, 
Sam gets shot. He goes off to live with the posthumanists, and he can't let go of the Bible. Yes. Several times he's drawn back to the Bible, and the redemptive story of the Bible and mm-hmm. loving everybody flies right in the face of being a posthumanist. Right. And he can't. <laughs> he struggles. He's back and forth, and he can't. As much as he wants to be a posthumanist, Charlie's ultimately good. Yeah. Which leads to the final scene where Charlie like saves the day and da 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 and like. And then becomes what? He becomes a, uh, a teacher in Boston? Is that where he ends he, up? I think he's a... Helps working with felons. Working I think with, working with ex-felons yeah. in Boston. Yeah. 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 And I so hope that he's married to Sam. No. Uh, but uh, I don't think I don't Sam think Sam made it up. Uh, Sam didn't Sam make, it, make it, it off the island. island. <laughs> I don't think she made it off the island. Yeah. She does. I don't... I mean, spoiler alert, but I'm pretty sure Sam doesn't make it off the island. That's a... Those are great points. Absolutely. Yeah. Really terrific. Um, well, and read of the when novel. you read, so one of the interesting things about this book that um, I just love, because I love when fiction does things that aren't just like, here is 600 pages of prose. But there are, the book is told in seven books, mm-hmm. right? In fact, I heard that in England, one publisher actually bundled them as seven novels and put them in like a, like oh, a, DVD, like a, cool. like a se- yeah. couple yeah, seasons yeah, yeah, of yeah. DVDs yeah. would come in. Yeah. But it's bundled in seven books, and, and so they'll be like, a part that happens in 1976-77, what's the present for this book? And then there'll be a part that happens between 1960 and 1976, which gets you caught up. Right. And then there'll be another part that's in the present. And interspersed through all these are these other pieces of media that, that are about the book. And one of the pieces is Sam's zine. Yeah. And in the zine, she has like music reviews, she has short fiction, she has history, she has all this stuff that she tapes together and as you read it it's kind of a love letter to charlie totally Mm -hmm. where she wants to be in love with keith who is cool older guy right she wants to be in love with nikki chaos who's this revolutionary who's leading a music charge yeah but she's really in love with charlie yeah and it was gone from her life when when she wrote most of it right wasn't this when he was it was when he was grounded and she was kind of and she just calls him cw in it yeah or there's one part where it's like Ode to Wurzberger or whatever his last name was. Yeah. Weisenberger. And she's very clearly, she, I don't think she knows it, yeah. but she misses him. He is the, the balancing force to her life. Right. And she can't help it because right. she's drawn to all these other things like any 17-year-old girl yeah. would be. It's exciting, but I think you pointed out before we started recording, those are two characters, Charlie and Sam, that are truly good and can't help but be good people. They mm-hmm. both against all the pressure and against all the odds, ended up doing the good thing, not the Nikki Chaos thing. Yeah, I tend to agree well, with Sam's, that. And Sam's, Sam's, role in, Sam's role in Keith's marriage isn't necessarily... So that's a little <laughs> iffy, yeah. But yeah, they, yeah, they make yeah. mistakes along yeah. the way, yeah. they, but in the end... We haven't talked about um, Regan yet either. And oh, I, I, I love Regan. Yeah, she was a great, great character. character. Yeah. Um, so the, Regan is, is, the, is a Hamilton Sweeney. Yeah. She's living in the upper crust. She's married to Keith. Right. And her, uh, she's part of the family real estate business. Yeah. And um, it, it almost, uh, you know, old money. Like uh, original Manhattan money. Right. The yeah. Hamilton Sweeney's, so the story of the Hamilton Sweeney's are that um, the Sweeney's or the Hamilton's, one of the two, are the old family. And they've been around since New York was founded. And like a lot of old school families, they'd kind of throw away all their money and burn it up. Right. And then there was a marriage where they brought in the Sweeney's or the Hamilton's, vice versa. Yeah. And they, it, it, w- there was a great line where it's like, and the, the dowry for getting our money back was the hyphenated name. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> cool, but we're going to be part of this. Right. And they became the Hamilton Sweeney's in the early 1900s. Yeah. And now they're this like global or 
just mega yeah, huge rich family. family. They yeah, have yeah. a they have a hundred story tower that's got their name on it. Right. And they themselves had come upon hard times, or not even hard times as much as the demon brother comes into play. Right. And the, and after so the demon brother yeah the demon brother is Amory Gould who marries Regan's dad. Uh, well, sister, Felicia Gold marries, marries Regan's dad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. excuse me. That, leading, that would have added but then to but he's the brother. Leading yeah. William to run away from the family and become an artist. Right. So basically right. An, a, a family of... Um, I, I kept thinking about, like... Uh, this is terrible, but I kept thinking about... Um, the characters in Tommy Boy, Rob Lowe, and whatever. Like, they marry into the big family. In fact, that's, yeah. like, that's absolutely exactly right. what was yeah. going that's, on. Those they marry exactly into the, the big family, yeah. and they clearly are trying to, you know, take, and Rob, o- yep. take over the empire. Right. Exactly. Um, and they, and they, they do kind of succeed in success. Yes. Yeah. And so, and again, to, to, give, to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of how this all connects, the demon brother, who is the brother of the person who marries Regan's father, the patriarch of the family, um, he teams up with Nikki Chaos, who we've been talking about for some time, and that their plot is to basically go set fires in the Bronx. Well, he uses Nikki, right? So right. he's yeah. like, hey, but, Nikki, but you want to burn the city down? Turns out I do too, I've got some spots I'd like to burn down. Right, because <laughs> it's going to help me from a real estate perspective. Right. And so they cook up this plan, and they go light fires in the Bronx, which, by the way, is part of New York history about yeah. what went on in the, in the late 70s, especially 1977, where all of these It was quite literally a city on fire. It was yeah. quite literally a city on fire. There's a, there's a ter- by the way, for terrific book, if you're interested in this time period, that, that Hallberg cites in his notes about how he wrote this book is, um, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning by, uh, and I, I don't remember the author off the top of my head right now, um, but it covers the mayor's race in 1977, which is missing from this book. Covers the music scene a little bit. It covers the blackout in detail, how mm-hmm. it happened, what happened at Con Ed, I guess, the way it shut down. Yeah. And it covers baseball because the World Series was happening. And the famous scene is Howard Cosell. He's calling the game. Uh-huh. And you can see fires in the Bronx from during the, wow. during the World Series. And wow. he says, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. It's this kind of famous line. Terrific um, uh, kind of m- modern histor- historical nonfiction about, uh, about New York at this time mm-hmm. period. So that, that's kind of, again, how the, the whole novel ends up tying together. But back to Regan, who I just thought was this really interesting character. Yes. She was in a marriage that probably was loveless. Uh-huh. Um, it became time, loveless yeah. for very specific yeah. reasons, yeah. which was that Keith was hired by the Demon Brother, but yeah. not hired to work for Hamilton Sweeney, but hired to work for another company, yeah, right? made a deal. which was all part of... Amory's plan to take over that other company. Yeah. Right. And Keith got drawn up in this rat race of Wall Street, right? Sold yes. sold. Make trades, yes. make trades, make more money, build a book, yes. build your, your capital, and become a bigger and bigger thing. And but why doing he's that, doing this? Because he's never part of the, um, the world that she came from. So he yeah. marries her. She lives in this elite world. You know, that she doesn't even really like. That right. she doesn't even really like. And she probably liked him because he wasn't of that. But then he got in it and he felt this pressure to become part of that. Right. Which is a great, um, that's a great character. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not, that's, it's, it's a character that's familiar, but yeah. he does a good job kind of. And then Keith goes, has this affair, which because his, he doesn't feel like he's, he's kind of lost control of his life. Right. And she, meanwhile, she's dealing with, she has anorexia, um, right. which seems to come in and out. Two kids. Two kids, yeah. 
Um, and also dealing with, you know, she's she realizes the demon brother, the, you know, what he's doing, consolidating his power. Well, to be clear, she also, you don't learn this till the very end, uh-huh. but she is dealing with the post-traumatic stress of having been raped and yes. having been set up for rape by the demon brother, right. oh where he yeah. introduces her to the son of a rival family knowing that that son has a history of raping women or at least a history of women who are not happy with their experience yes. after they've been with him for a date. Right. And he's like, why don't you two kids go play? Uh-huh. He's charming. She's beautiful. It ends up that she's raped. Yeah. She gets pregnant, and she goes off to Italy, right. which is Buffalo, uh-huh. to have this kid. Right. Now, one question I have for you guys, and this uh, is purely speculative. Did she have the kid? She didn't have the she kid. Had, she had an abortion, abortion, right? Right. But isn't Charlie adopted from Buffalo or that area? I don't uh, remember. I don't know. And so I, a, I do not yeah. think yeah. that he's supposed to be her kid, right? right? But there's a. But she goes to Buffalo or to yeah. upstate to have the kid and spend six months hiding, pretending she's in Italy. Uh-huh. Charlie, who would be that age, because this happened in 1960, Charlie's 16, would be that age in 1977. Yeah. He's adopted by his Jewish parents right. from there. I think there's a world in which Charlie's actually should have been William Hamilton Sweeney the Fourth, right? And I don't think that. There's, he's saying that that is what it is, but right. I think he's saying that this is one way that could have happened. That could, she has this moment well at the end. Yeah. She has this moment in where Charlie, in some ways, redeems her. Right. And she is at a loss. She's at the bottom. She was supposed to. She was supposed to go on a date and have sex for the first time outside of her marriage. They were mm-hmm. separated, and she'd been flirting with this young guy yeah. at the firm. And she had planned to go on a date with him that night, and uh-huh. she'd kind of made it clear she was going to give yeah. it up. It's time. And, and. The blackout happens. Her kids get lost because her husband get, is with the FBI, gets yeah. drawn into all this stuff. And she and her husband kind of make up. Come back together. In this crisis of losing their family, right. they decide that they want their family back. And yeah. she, um, she very much like almost gets to the brink and then is pulled back from it, which I right. think is fascinating. And yeah. at that moment, when her and her husband have been out all night, they've been searching for kids, she can tell that there's something there. She's kind of wanting them back anyways. But she's lost, and it's Charlie who they happen to bump into, and she tells Charlie to call home, and then Charlie comes out of there's this weird like phone booth in mm-hmm. their giant mansion and says, <laughs> "Now it's your turn." And she goes, "What do you mean? Like I'm fine?" Yeah. And he's like, "No, call your house, call and call and call until you find your family." Yeah. And she does, and her family's there, and it's fine, and they all get back together. But it's this moment where, and then he like almost falls asleep or something like that in her lap and she like pats his head yeah. and uh-huh. she has this like feeling of this could be my kid. Yeah. And it's like this weird healing for wow, her through Jason him, Barrett, which was man. pretty you crazy, right? This. Yeah. Very well done. I, I had never, super, I hadn't even occurred insi- to me to no, think no, of it. No, I would yeah. never but picked up on that. That detail. was a parallel, I think. Wow. Because that, you're right. I'm rocking back in my chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With my, and my, my, the spikes in my hair are the green spikes. Kind of some green stuff on the wall, Brett. Unbelievable. <laughs> no, that's a really interesting look at this. Um, it, he does a lot. There's, there's a lot in this novel yes. to unpack. And I think that's probably why it was frustrating for reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I'm the reviewer of the New York Times and this book has gotten in the newspaper four times before it's come out, and mm-hmm. you know you have to read it fast to write a review and get it up online. And I know you have some time to do it because you get an advanced copy, but right. I can see why this would be frustrating to write a thousand-word review in the New yes. York Times because there's just a lot going on. The, the more time between when I read it and the more time that elapses, I like it more. And it's, I like it even more now that you're pointing this out. You know, There's just a lot going on in this book. 
Um, that yeah, I, f- I feel like a couple of things Jason's just said here made me even m- yeah. more appreciate what Hallberg has done. Right. And um, I think that was, you know, I feel for him a bit. Not, not too much. I mean, the guy's been in, like, Vanity Fair. With got two million dollars. Shots, yeah. Got two million dollars. Movie's I been optioned. Ter- movie's right. been, yeah. He's like the it boy writer in New York. But I do feel for him a little bit. Yeah. Because he wrote a novel. He got $2 million for it. And I'm all for that. I mean, I think people who do write should get paid. Oh, I mean, yeah. they think about the contribution that they're making to the cultural world. So I don't begrudge him the fact that he got $2 million out of it. Right. But there are a lot of people who do begrudge him for that. Right. And so I think that the bar was already so high, like, I can't believe this jerk got two million bucks. Yeah. Wait till I get my chance to write my review from the sidelines. When yeah. you think and about that's the kind of unfair. Right. That's, a, that's a really, um, I mean, y- you know, I think we talked about this in some of the other Franzen and no- novels as well, too. Like, he's such an it boy now that no matter what he does, it's going to be overanalyzed, and there's going to be a hot take within right. 24 hours of it been, of, of it been, being published and uh, well, and so much some, of it sometimes it novels like this have to marinate for yeah, a while. Well, so much of it is the hand wringing over like the future of publishing, right? So you know, it, are books a thing? As I think a lot right. of people meta. in the publishing get real meta exactly. about yeah. this book. And, and so what he does gets it mean two million dollars, and what does that say? Are books back or are books not back? Or is now there's just one book and we can have a good book because that gets the two million <laughs> bucks and there's no other money? Yeah. Um, but it's a good book. Like <laughs> ultimately, it's a really good book, yeah. and it's a fascinating time in American history. And I talked a little bit about the uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. There are other books about, out there that I've dug into. There's a book called The Fires by Joe Flood that's all about the fires in the Bronx and how the mayor was. He kind of accuses the mayor and his team of being a little bit complicit and having it happen. Who was the mayor at the time? Lindsay. Okay. Right, and I, then yeah, I think so. Uh, Lindsay was mayor for a period, um, and then didn't didn't in this th- then Koch won. I think this is when Koch won, and then Koch led to Giuliani, and Giuliani cleaned it up. Right? Uh, That's the, like, there might have been one in between. Yeah, there so was uh, Dinkins. Dinkins, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the fact that this. But, book but uh, the, fi- the fires, by the way, is a great novel if you're into cities. Savage City is a great no- great book about. Um, it's not the fires is not a novel. It's nonfiction, and Savage City is also nonfiction. And that's a book about the crime crime in the 70s um, in New York City, and it really gives you a sense of how pervasive crime was and how much it really worried uh, an entire society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a bit like Chicago right now, frankly. Right. Well, and they say that that's one of the things that Reagan was able to capitalize on, right, was right. crime is out of control. Yeah. I'm going to right. bring that, or I'm going to bring that to a halt. Right. right. Mandatory minimums. You know, new drug laws, the war on drugs, all, all right. of that came out of this really bad time. Right. One of the things that you said in the lead up to this, Chris, which I love. So I, I love the fact that this is kind of this recent history and a kind of p- piece of history that I think uniquely because of our age, we mm-hmm. like skip back. Like, because it wasn't history when we were born. And by the right. time we were old enough, we were still kind of thinking about the 60s and early 70s in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. And there's this period. And then all of a sudden you're into the 80s. But I had joked in, a, in an email leading up to this about, you know, 
can Sam maybe be alive? Can yeah. she maybe be alive? I just really want to see Sam. Yeah. And then you joke, no, she is going to be alive. She's going to be in part two, City on Fire 2, <laughs> The Cocaine Days in New York of yeah. the 80s. <laughs> and I love that idea because on some level, I want to read this yeah. book about the 80s and yeah. about Wall Street and about what happens there told from these different yeah. perspectives. Bonfire the Vanities. Bonfire the Vanities. But then yeah, I want to exactly read it right. in the 90s, too. Yes. And I want to read it in the time right after 9-11. I want to yeah. read this book with this eclectic collection of characters yes. leading up to these big moments because it's fascinating. It is. So I would, in that regard, I would definitely recommend Bonfire the Vanities. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a quintessential New York Epic book. It's Tom Wolfe. I mean, it's a classic, Never read that one. classic, yeah. classic book. Yeah, uh, and very about much New York in the. It would be like the, the early eighties. Yeah, yeah mid eighties. Mid eighties. Yeah. And then um, I've never read um, Delillo, but a lot of the reviewers talk about Delillo. Underworld. Underworld yeah. is a, a New York at about a certain time. White yeah. Noise I, I think is the other one that's real. real white good. Noise is great. Underworld is kind of the more. It's the. It's the New York it's, you, book, it's, right? it's really New York. I, I, there's a. There's a blackout in it, and I honestly can't remember if it's the 77 blackout or the earlier blackout. Well, and then there's one that happens in, like, 2003, I, remember? Yeah. I yeah. remember watching that from my couch. Right. Everybody, like, walked across the I bridge. I was in Buffalo. I, okay. I was in New York. I lived in New York at that time. Really? For the blackout? I, actually, I was in North Carolina when the, the blackout weekend. happened. But wow. I, I, I had an it. apartment in New York. Yeah. But... uh All my friends had to walk to work. We talked about this in another podcast. Um, Go go download um, about Detroit. It was the podcast about the um, the city of Detroit. Um, Despite I don't know if the listeners will be able to hear the sirens outside. We're actually (laughs) recording in Cincinnati, not New York in the seventies. But um, despite our outfits, yeah, (laughs) that's despite our outfits, right? we, the the three of us who recorded the podcast about the Detroit book, Detroit City is the place to be. Um, we were all clamoring for more books that feature a city more prominently, yes. and I think as a character York, yes. as the character, which is what is clearly what ha- the New York is as much of a character as anybody, any one person in this novel. Um, but we were clamoring for more books that really bring to life a city, either from a nonfiction perspective or a fiction perspective. Mm-hmm. New York gets a lot. Yeah. London gets a lot. Right. Chicago seems to get a fair amount. But there are other cities out there, too. And, you know, message to any authors who might be listening, <laughs> like, we'll read your book if you yeah. write it yeah. and write a compelling story about a city at a certain period of time. Yeah. Um, well, you know, when I, I... I have a question for Jason, I think. Because you've done a great job in general on all these podcasts, but especially (laughs) in this one of saying, you know, finding it that, that, you know, why did this happen, that that spin, that explanation of, you know, or intriguing explanation for why something happened. The one, the thing that puzzled me in this book um, was the section where Mercer goes to Georgia essentially to score a bag of pot. You know what part I'm talking about? Yeah, connect and, and see, his, see his family, right? Yeah. Well, one of the things... Is he, he sees his... He's, so Mercer is... I don't think we've talked about Mercer yet. So before you answer, Mercer is um, a teacher at a prep school where Regan's kid goes, daughter mm-hmm. goes. Mm-hmm. Mercer is also uh, dating... Regan's brother, William Hamilton Sweeney slash Billy Three Sticks. When the, right. And the, the story kicks off with, with Mercer that, yeah. being puzzled about why his boyfriend does not talk to his family. And then he runs into the sister and puts it all together. Well, because he it's, gets an envelope. 
Mercer gets invited yeah. to this, this New Year's Eve party. Right. This New Year's Eve party is what will ultimately be the thing that draws Sam to, right. to right. Um, Central Park that gets her shot. And Mercer goes to meet his sister in order yeah. to find out about the party, right? Right. Yeah. I, I want to point out, it's interesting we're just talking about Mercer now because he can lay claim, or you can make a claim that he's actually the main character. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mercer's uh, gay, African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, Southern. Su- Southern. Yeah, from Georgia, not of New York. Right. Um, clearly a character that Hallberg goes back to over and over right. and over again at key critical points. I think he's the, the first character, isn't he? I believe he uh, is. He may. Be, he is. Yeah. It's isn't it, it the first scene. The, it's like the, him and William. Him and William getting the tree. Right? Is that the? Yep. Is, is that, is the, that first the first scene? scene? It's either that it's or Christmas. them going to the. Yes, it is. It's, it's Christmas. Christmas because then okay. And then, then that leads to New Year's party. where yes. Billy goes to see okay. his band right. reformed. Okay. Right. 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 In his image. Okay. Well, we talked earlier about how. Um, the author has an amazing ability to be in each person mm-hmm. fully and understand their motivations. I thought Mercer was one of the most interesting ones because he seems like one of the more, the more difficult characters to right. write. Um, but he also, in some ways, is, I think, one of my, like, the least interesting character to, for me for some uh-huh. reason. And I think that's because he has this very, like, well, and maybe he's em- emblematic of the whole thing, right, which is he just really wants to be loved by... Billy, and he right. can't get Billy to love him the way he wants to be loved. Right. Um, and part of that is is that he didn't feel loved at home. So when he goes home, you see that his dad doesn't really love him. Yeah. His brother and him have a complicated relationship. Okay. His mom loves him, but in a very, like, I'm not going to acknowledge who you are right. kind of way. Like, his yeah. mom, it's clear, knows that he's gay. Right. But doesn't want to talk about that. Right. And so, you know, his, his journey home on some level is just for him to mourn being broken up with Billy, but also... He that's where that's where he starts smoking pot, right? Yeah, because like that does feature more in the, the later part of the book. Him mm-hmm. him c- kind of working his way through this bag of pot that he <laughs> does he he buys it with his brother or does yeah, he just take really it? It's really a kind of a um, you know one review said it was like a book within a book or a small yeah aside yeah it's it, it it doesn't it doesn't feel of this novel and I you know and he mentions the is it a is it Chekhov or Tolstoy that says if there's a gun in the first act of the play, mm. it has to go off by the third act. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a gun in this that he buries. I don't know. And it's not made clear why. I was thinking it w- he would take the gun back to New York and yeah. would make a play or his brother would do something. And he'd have, But the, he just kind of, the gun just appears. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I buried it in the yard. Yeah, I, had, I mean, Mercer, I don't, I, it was... Um, at different times, I felt more interested in him, and then I was kind of like, all right. You always wanted him to kind of just be more, to take possession of his own life yeah. more. And but he, he wasn't ready to he do does, it, right? He, he does so by moving to New so, York, but that's yeah. kind of it. Billy picks him out and decides to date him, and then right. he's just so happy. But isn't that, that that's like his yet. first... Uh, 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 boyfriend, it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's his first boyfriend, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's his his first love. Right. Um, Billy's 4,000th it was clearly not Billy's first, right? Yeah. It was Mercer's first, so it meant more to Mercer. <laughs> right. But on um, some level, every time Mercer tries to take agency over his own life, he fails at it miserably, right? right? So he tries to have an intervention for Billy when Billy's using heroin, and that mm-hmm. goes poorly and yeah. leads to them breaking up and Billy moving out. Oh, my gosh, the intervention was such a cluster. Venus of, de Nylon. Yeah. That's, maybe one of the yeah. best characters. Yeah. yeah. Very great. Culminating with her awesome. pissing yeah. on a cop car. Yeah. Maybe the, most, the, the, the peak of the rebellion of yeah. the book. Um, but yeah, and then Mercer, even tr- at the end, him and Jenny try to take kind of agency and save William's life, and uh-huh. that 
I'm trying to think how that plays out, right? Like she eventually they, goes off with with this, Charlie? No, she goes off with this injured man that yes. she finds at the hospital. Oh yeah, who was a rando, right? In the yeah, he's a rando. He's just yeah. a rando. This is, again, that's where this is another Ginny's life goes. Very. Um, by the end of the book, you, you're kind of coming to expect that there will be still 800 pages in the novel. He's going to throw a new character at you. Right. Right. Well, to, I think the interesting thing for Mercer, and when I read this book, what I thought one of the main themes of it was New York at this time was free. I mean, there was crazy art going on downtown. There was graffiti, breakdancing, hip-hop going on uptown. I mean, the cops can't stop muggers, so they're not going to care if you walk around with a beer right. or smoking a joint or whatever, or tagging on a wall. So it's like he takes these characters who all have a yearning for something. He gives them absolute freedom, and then it's like, well, what do you do with it, you know? Do you start your own anarcho anarchic squatting collective? Right. Do you, you know, move in with a man and then try to get him? You know, it's like these people all want something. He puts them in the place where they can get it, and then it's like. Well, one of the things I like about this book is it's yeah. in some ways it's 900 pages, and we all agree it's a, a piece of art. Yeah. Brendan says it's going to live for a while, and I agree. Yeah. I'm glad um, you said piece of art because I think that it is. You're right. It's more than just words. There's pictures. There's drawings. There's. Well, and to get really meta, it's bookended by becoming a piece of art exactly. itself, which I don't want to yeah. get into. Uh, that's, no, I'm that, glad you I, said that it. That was maybe yeah. not my favorite part of it. I thought that I'm was glad a little you bit said it. It's another pony. No, yeah. but it's another but, point in his favor. I mean, like. He didn't just write a novel that has a story here. And to go back to your early part about not knowing some of the words, I had the same problem with it. And we kind of accused him of showing off a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what an artist does. Right. They're showing off their craft. Right. And so if you take this as more than just a book and actually a piece of art about New York in a period of time that just features a lot of words, um, you can forgive him a little bit for mm -hmm. showing off a little bit that. I mean, plenty of artists who have canvases on a wall show off yeah. with what they can do with their technique. You don't say that guy's showing off because that painting looks yeah. just like a look. horse. You know? <laughs> yeah. Show off. <laughs> look at Monet. He's a show off. But anyway, but back to your point. I'm glad you said artwork. Art. As much as it's this piece of art, uh -huh. right? It also, on some base level, is a very simple story of a family. It is a whodunit about a girl that's shot and mm -hmm. spins the whole book in a coma and we try to figure out who did it. Yeah. It is... A bunch of characters lost trying to find something, which is a very, very simple kind of novelistic. Basic thing. themes yeah. in literature. There, there yeah. are two clear bad guys. Uh -huh. So Amory Gould is a bad guy yeah. who yeah. is using people, who sets Regan up to be raped, who is stealing her father's fortune. Yeah. Nikki Chaos, I saw as a villain the whole yeah. time. Yep. And yeah. and some of his cohorts, who we learn a little bit more about him later. But the whole posthumanist thing is very clearly meant to be bad guys. Right. Um. And he ultimately, both of them, get their comeuppance, which means in a very, like, the hero wins in the end. Like, yeah. the bad guys get taken out. Yeah. The, the family comes back together. Yeah. In this book, everybody does live happily ever after. It's true. And so, but in a beautiful, beautiful way. Yeah. And so, like, I just love that fact about the book, that in this art, it's still just this basic story. Mm -hmm. And on some levels, we talked about this too, he you build up to, and there's this feeling, so you're heading to the blackout, and mm -hmm. you know that from the cover jacket. This mm -hmm. is about the blackout. Yeah. 
things are, there's a definite, so like a lot of books, there isn't like a climatic scene. It's not a, it's not a movie. There's mm -hmm. not a, like a confrontation that's going to be the like scene. But this book makes you feel like there's going to be because yeah. you're building up and you've got 700 pages and the lights go out and yeah. it's like, here goes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, grab onto the edge of your chair. We're going to, and there's this feeling because he so beautifully draws all these things in there. There's high stakes games going on here. There, a building might blow up. Somebody got shot. There's going to be a confrontation. Maybe Billy's getting hunted and he's going to get shot himself. Mm -hmm. You know, for a little while, I was like, maybe the bomb is what causes the blackout. You know, yeah. Who knows? And then it doesn't really ever get to that confrontation. Right. Right. And one of my favorite relationships we haven't talked about yet is the relationship between Billy and his father. Yes. One of the most complicated relationships, one of the, I think the second or third interlude is a letter from Bill the second uh -huh. to Bill the third on the night of his wedding. Yes. Except instead, that night, Billy confronts his dad about his sister's rape. Uh -huh. His dad does not react about it the way he thinks he does. Yeah. Billy gets drunk and gives a crazy toast and Step storms wonder. off. Right. And storms off. For a decade. For a decade. A decade. At the end of the book, what I've been waiting for almost more than anything else is the confrontation between Billy and his father. Yeah. Yeah. And it ends up loving. Yes. It ends up so loving. And Billy, uh -huh. as mad as he is, he has not talked to his family for, thir for 17 years. Yeah. Ends up kind of putting his dad to bed. Right. It's a, dad it's a very PJs. tender scene. His dad is, seems to have Alzheimer's. Yes. He, he pisses himself. At the and end. then... He, and Billy has this great confrontation. You yeah. knew I was gay. You didn't uh -huh. love us enough. And uh, you're a terrible person. Yeah. And then he finds out maybe his dad was asleep. Yeah. But he gets it all off his chest. Uh -huh. And yeah. he kind of then takes his dad to bed and puts him down. And, and then right as you're like, well, that was kind of a real, like it wasn't very confrontational, but it was really powerful. Mm -hmm. The dad, in a moment of lucidity, says, there's something for you on the dresser. Yeah. As though that envelope, which we read about in page like 40 of a 900-page uh -huh. book, was waiting on the dresser his entire 17 oh, years, wow. yeah. right? Yeah. And the and the letter we, turns out, and I'm interested in your guys' opinion about this. But in the letter, does the dad kind of admit that he too is gay, but he feels the weight of being a Hamilton Sweeney and takes that on and just decides to live the life, and he's kind of saying, "I get you, son." Like. But you have oh, to do I this too. Yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's saying that or not. But he's, he's gay, saying, but or saying I don't want to do this. I don't want to be this. Because the letters from guy. the beginning, right? Yep. Yeah. But he very much. But well, and so maybe he is. Maybe he's not. Right. Mm -hmm. But he very much says like I too don't want to bear this. Right. But I am an adult in the fifties, mm -hmm. and says, I am going to yeah, do the thing. Yeah. Put on the suit. Wear the hat. Read the, read the paper every day and go yeah. make money and do the family thing. And I'm going to marry my wife and I'm going to have uh -huh. a couple kids and I'm doing that thing. And, uh -huh. and you need to do that too. You need to grow up and be responsible. Right. And William uh, does not. <laughs> I didn't get the, I didn't, I didn't factor in the, the piece that the father I, might I be I just gay. wondered yeah. because. But he does say. William like, and gay was such a big thing. I right. wondered if it that was like. It does seem, it's an interesting father-son dynamic. Yeah. I mean, it's a father who, you know did what he had to do, didn't rebel, sacrificed what he may have wanted to do. Exactly. Right. Um, whether it was his sexuality or not, it was just, mm -hmm. I'm going to live a life that I'm supposed to live because that's the way the Hamilton Sweeney's have lived for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then his marriage to Felicity Gould. Felicia, yeah. Felicia Gould is very much like, you know, she fits the profile. Yeah. She'll be a good, the second, you know, yeah, second right. wife, you know. And his like, you know, his inability to kind of really relate to either one of his kids. Even in the letter, it doesn't really relate to him very well. Like, it's not a great letter. It's just a like, 
Sorry, kid. Like, yeah. it's tough being a yeah. dude. Yeah. Um, while we were talking, I was thinking about, uh, we were talking about New York in the 70s, and y- you mentioned something else that made me think of um, Colm McCann's Let the Great World Spin. I don't know if you've read that novel, which is about New York in 74, and he does, um, he interweaves a bunch of characters together, except it's more like four stories that where they're all connected, but you don't really feel like, you don't realize they're all connected to the end. And that's centered around the moment where uh, the guy walks across the wire. Um, Which was just made into a movie that's apparently yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I don't think this, um, I don't think Let the Great World Spin was made into a movie, but there was a documentary and then a movie about the guy who walks across the mm-hmm. World Trade Centers. Yeah. On a wire, but this is McCann's novel all happens while these, um, while that guy's walking across off the novel, and I really liked that book. I'm a fan of kind of books that have four stories and then you figure out how they're interwoven mm-hmm. together. That's not really what this is. Mm-hmm. This is one story um, where the characters are interrelated almost the entire time. You don't see it right. the entire way, but they e- each one of them is part of the other's story. Yeah. Well, and he does me does a great Pulp Fiction esque like play with time, yeah. right? So you he does. you experience this set of things, and he, he very easily could be like, and this is who shot her, but, but he I, doesn't. He like then yeah. gives like you know from the beginning that Armory is bad, Amory is bad, mm-hmm. and you know that he did something very bad to Reagan right. very right. early. You don't on, figure right? out until later, and they don't tell you that until yeah. you know maybe 100 pages to go, where you finally get, or 200 pages to go, where you finally get what happened and how terrible it is and right. how. It, it makes her who she is and how it makes Billy who he is and how, um, you know, it, it is in some ways the driver of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah. So, the, I mean, the reason I brought up the, Let the Great World Spin is because I think a lot more people ha- who who may have been listening, who may have listened to this um, or are interested in these kind of novels will have read Let the, Let the Great World Spin because it's much more, it's manageable. It's 350 some pages. It's far, far easier to read. It was very popular on the book club circuit for a long time. I would encourage, if you liked that, give this a try mm-hmm. because I think it does have some of the same um, qualities. It is just much more, it's just much more difficult to read. It yeah. is much longer of a read. It will take um, readers a longer time. But I, I do think it was more, I think in the end, if I'm thinking about the two, it's, it's, it's more rewarding than um, let, let the Great World Spin, which is saying a lot because that was a wonderful novel. Mm. Um, the only th- other thing I want to point out, because you, Jason, you said this before the podcast started, and it hasn't come up yet, and I feel like it must, is um, we talked about the connection to Almost Famous, um, <laughs> which is one one of my all-time favorite um, movies, so and great. the relationship between Penny Lane and uh, the main character of that novel. There, there's some, there's some um, of the same characteristics between Sam and. Charlie in this novel, and mm-hmm. I think that if you think about it in that um, th- with that comparison, you, their relationship comes a lot more to life. Um, it was just a great, a g- great connection. Absolutely, and I mean, w- one of the interesting things about this book, as we kind of come to a close of this podcast, I guess maybe, is that all of the characters have this great yearning. We've talked about a, d- a bunch of different characters yearning, but they all—it's it, all—they all get a chance to have this redemptive quality. And so if New York is a character and New York is at its lowest at this moment, it's Mm -hmm. literally on fire, um, graffiti everywhere. um, But now New York is a totally different place. It's totally redeemed. And for me, all of the characters in this book or many of the characters in this book also are redeemed. And they're searching for that redemption. 
in their relationships with others. And ultimately, they find a way to be redeemed and to find something about themselves that they care about. Um, one of the reviews I read right before this talked about how, and it was more of an interview with the author, where it said that in some ways he was responding to other authors who have been writing lately and have the theme of, I am lonely, therefore I will love you. That will make me less lonely. And that's, you know, I think one type of relationship. And what he said was he's trying to do something different, which is, you are lonely, therefore I will love you. Which I think is a fascinating look at how a lot of these characters interact and a way to find redemption, which is not in oneself, yeah. but is in others. Right. And in the bringing them up. Um, and I think Charlie and Sam's one of the easiest ways to look at this. Right. But Mercer and Williams, another yeah. great relationship. Keith and Reagan. Keith ultimately yeah, yeah. decides that to, to love Reagan right. unconditionally and mm-hmm. not want Reagan to love him. And that's what flips for him. Yeah. And in some ways, even. Sam and Keith. Yep. Sam and Keith. Yeah. Um, which was really pervy. Like, I didn't like that. Like, it was fascinating. It was really well written. Uh-huh. When he visits saying, her, yeah, when he saying, visits yeah. her in the hospital and he says, Oh my God, she's a child. Yeah. 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 What was I? And then he's like, I think he said something like, she wasn't a child, she had her legs wrapped around me or something terrible. Yeah. But it's just this moment of like, ugh. Um, like that was, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Very bad. But, um, but even in the relationship of William the Fourth or Will, who ends up being the bookend of this, um, and it kind of takes us into the future. Like we get to the Reagan. year 2002 of yeah. these characters in some ways. But he, and it's only a page or two, has his own little troubles with his life and his wife, Julia, and he has to kind of decide to invest himself back in that relationship, mm-hmm. not for wanting her to love him, but for wanting to take care of her, which yeah. is just kind of interesting how that mimics it throughout all mm-hmm. of it. And even, even in, you know, the father, Chicario, mm-hmm. who the, the fireworkers, we even talk Carmi- about the fireworkers. Carmine. Carmine, yeah. Carmine may be the most interesting character. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, just we fascinating. There could be a whole book about the fireworks industry, and there kind of is in here. Yeah. <laughs> but... But that piece of this and how that relates to everything, we didn't. We haven't talked about Richard, the author. We haven't talked about Jenny Hardly. We haven't talked about Bruno. Yeah. Um, yeah. We haven't talked about the detective, who right. is the one that wraps it all up. There's Another so many main character. amazing uh, yeah. pieces of this. Yeah. Well, and his relationship to his wife and her desire to retire. Oh, his, yeah, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. His, drive, his drive to solve cases and to be important and to be a police officer. Yeah. Yeah. And she just wants him to take a second and listen to what she's saying yes. and to think about her happiness and what yeah. she wants. It's amazing how yeah. all of these characters have that same kind of theme. And the relationship between Jenny and Richard, which was you know, one of the best relationships, and yeah. her kind of just wanting to have someone to talk to. Yeah. This lonely city. I mean, there. Yeah. Yeah. she has a really lonely... She, I mean, she has one of the saddest stories of everybody, right? Yeah. Moves to New York City. Like yeah. Her parents get divorced. We get this glimpse back into... Really disillusioned. Korean immigrants yeah. in California Berkeley, in the 50s. Like we're talking about hippies to punks. She comes from Berkeley, where she's trying to change the world for the better, and comes to New York and is like a secretary at an art gallery. Right. Top yeah. end. And that's after being unemployed. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was fascinating. Living in a, a tiny, tiny, tiny little apartment where right. she can hear through the walls. And, right. Yeah. I've heard there are great characters in this novel. Yeah. Just great characters. I loved her going on the dilidates. Yeah. You think about like <laughs> Tender now or whatever, yeah. and then like she's on like a dilidate, which I can't even, I don't even know what that is, but I can yeah. only like piece it together from the name of it. Yeah. But it's fascinating to think <laughs> back to like personal ads and stuff like that. Right. Like, yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, one, one more question. Okay. Because you lived in New York. Yeah. Uh, and Jason said something. 
Do you, I'm jealous of anyone who's lived in New York. Agreed. Absolutely um, agreed. I, I, if I could go back to myself early 20s. 20 years ago and say, just go live there for a year. Do three years, I yeah. Feel, three yeah. years, whatever. I feel like people who live there, and I've had a conver- this conversation with a friend of mine who did live there for um, a few years. I'm so envious of it because it is just such an iconic American city and experiment that I feel like I missed something by not being there. Um, what's your impression of New York in, in the novel? And then Jason kind of alluded to the fact that it's been redeemed. Yeah. Do you, well, do you feel differently about that? Do you, <laughs> you want it's, it's hard to say. I, actually, I moved to New York. Um, I was in my, I guess I was in my mid-20s, but um, I moved to New York because of my fascination with New York in the late 70s. Because of this? Because wow. of that. Because of the, the music that was being made there, the, like the punk and the hip-hop, the, uh, you know, this, just the sense of freedom. I love like film from the late 70s, especially if it's set in New York. Like, I just love that idea. But you go there, and it's, it's hard to say I wish there was more crime. <laughs> I wish it was grittier <laughs> and dirtier and there was more graffiti. But it's, it just didn't have that freedom. You know, it didn't have that anything can happen. You I missed mean, it. You missed the time. All uppercase, anything could happen. It's, I feel like now it's like anything can happen all lowercase. Yes, all kinds of things can happen there, but and some things can only happen there, but it it just was missing that that what's in this book, this like you can go there and you can do what you want, you can be what you want, you can be like huge in everyone in the world's face basically, or you can be an anonymous person on the sidewalk and still have a an amazing experience, you know? Um, when did you live there? I lived there, I moved there in 2001 and left in 2005. Um, so like the perfect little three to five year clip? Yeah. yeah. And you didn't have, about. you, you I, I, it's fascinating that you went kind of with this, with City on Fire yeah. style New York in your mind. Yeah. You almost went you to read this book. You to live this book. <laughs> but it didn't book. even exist. Well, you, yeah. you obviously didn't find it and then you got there at a period of time that was also another time shift in New York. Yes. I mean, right there at 9-11. So yes. very clearly there have, uh, there have been some novels already written about that period of time, but right. it's so far uh, divorced from this New York. Yes. Um, I, yeah, I lived there at the, at the tail of the Giuliani days. Right. When there were still people there. I, I, I worked in Midtown, um, uh, like at 31st <laughs> Street, and I used to always end up on the same train as this guy, and we'd walk in, and he would say... And he was an old New Yorker. He grew up in New York, and he'd be like, "Yeah, back, you know, yeah, a couple decades ago, there would this place would be all hookers, and you could buy heroin over there, and you know, I saw someone get stabbed right there." And you were like, "That's why I moved here." Yes, yeah. <laughs> what street is that on now? <laughs> yeah, that's why yeah. I came to New York, and you took it all away. Well, and interestingly, the bookends happened during that period, right? So the the, yeah. the art project that is the book is. Yeah. happens William the Fourth. Um, Will right. gets there in like 2002, it recovers is. this piece of art, goes back and spends six months putting it together with Bruno, yeah. away from his wife and family, and then it ends in 2003 when he sends his sister or his his mom like an email that's like, "Hey, I finished it. Right. I hope you come to the show." Right. Um, and you were there for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a great ways, way to think about it. I mean, you. Um, this book is fascinating because it's a time period that I think people 
who are of a certain age or people who who follow New York or interested in New York would be really interested in. It's such right. a, this was a, a moment in time in New York that is still very fascinating. There's still a lot left to mine. Hallberg mines a lot of it in this novel. Um, and I think you can give me like three like books of homework assignments. Yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. I, need I got read. more too. I mean, it's just yeah. a great. There's plenty. Um, so but I this is a great. It's. I think it's. A, we'll, and we'll put those in the show notes as well too. But um, it, it sounds to me like all of us would recommend this to, to highly, to, yes. highly, highly recommend yes. to listeners. So I, I love this book, but I especially can't wait to read his second book. That's a great point. That's a great point. I hope he's not discouraged. By his by, some of the reviews which were a little yeah, tough. On I don't him. think he will be. I don't Sounds know. like he has his head on his shoulders. Good. So interestingly, I read this book only because Brendan assigned it to me for this podcast, and so I'd done a couple you of the podcasts and yeah, I had fun. Quotes, and uh-huh. so I, and I, I asked Brendan, I was like, "What's next?" And he goes, "City on Fire." Uh-huh. It was like a text message conversation. And was, yeah. I think that was the sum total of it. So I was yeah. like, "All right, got to get it." And it just so happened that I was in New York City in early November, and uh, my girlfriend had put together. A map of bookstores, uh-huh. and so we went. We were going to go to all of these bookstores, and we ended up only going to two because we both bought like you six books. You should marry her. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will this May. Yeah. So, so we only went to two bookstores because we'd bought like seven or eight books between us and spent like a couple hundred bucks. And we were like, all right, we can't go to more bookstores, or we're we're going to you know bust the budget of this here trip. Um, but at the second bookstore we're at, I had you know you shop around. We were there for like an hour, and I had two books I was going to buy, and she had a book or two, and I get up to the counter and the guy asked the question that every bookstore or every store owner always asks, which is anything else. Uh-huh. And it hit me. I was like, oh, my homework assignment. I need City on Fire. Do you uh-huh. have City on Fire? And he goes, it's right below you. And literally there was a stack of that, 20 uh, of them yeah, that, yeah. that got up to the counter and the counter was like chest high. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, great. And so I picked one up. Four. There was only four books stacked up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was from, from the floor. <laughs> yeah. So I pick one up and the guy says, the guy goes, you wouldn't believe it. But the author was here an hour ago uh, signing books. Uh, <laughs> and my copy of the book has his signature in it. In fact, oh, nice. Like, as you can see, and I'm true. holding up the signature oh, here. for it. It's right there. Um, but he had just, I missed him by an hour. He had been in that bookstore in lower Manhattan. And you um, have your dust jacket off. Um, yeah. I didn't realize, I've never taken mine off, but there are uh, really cool insect fireworks, fireworks yeah. on the cover. I, I'm pr- I promise you people are still going to be talking about this book a decade from now. I'm I think sure. it's really good. I think it's going to grow in terms yeah. of its appreciation. Um, I feel like there's two or three chapters I'm going to reread before yeah. I pick something else up quite yeah. frankly. This has been a great discussion today. Yeah. Um, thank you for joining us today on the 12th story. Uh, we encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're on iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. Please, uh, if you will, take a moment, and if you like listening to us and you like listening to some of the other podcasts that you've heard here at The 12th Story, uh, rate us on iTunes or hit us with the review. That helps quite a bit. Um, and if you like listening, tell your friends on Facebook or on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at Mercantile L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered, as always, by Chris Messick, who also participated in the podcast. It's great to have you. For the you. first time. He's just been the no, man no, behind the scenes, well, at least when I've been here. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the first time he's put the microphone on himself. It is it's terrific to have, to have Chris talking. Oh, um, thank you for sharing your New York stories. Jason Barron from Red Bike, thank you for being here. I'm Brendan Call. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Thank you. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. Happy birthday to (laughs) you. Got that on. Happy birthday.